Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com slash WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Flippers. That's what former Republican strategist Sarah Longwell calls voters who switched from Trump to Biden. She's running focus groups to figure them out and coming up on the United States of Anxiety, what Sarah's learned about how these voters might show up in the upcoming Republican primaries. Then we open the mailbag and get an assignment from one of you, a follow-up to our episode on the relationship between our names and our identities. I want people to start to understand that we're the masters of our identity. We spend so much time living inside of boxes, whether those be socioeconomic boxes, cultural boxes, gendered boxes. And I want to make space for people to feel safe pushing back against those forces that keep them fixed within a particular identity space. That's all coming up. I'm not sure if you can hear these demonstrations, but democracy is on the mind and people have a lot of opinions on things that are going on um, in politics right now. Where are you from? Oklahoma City. Maryland. California. Bay Area. Oakland. Do you know when your next congressional election is? No, I don't. What kind of characteristics are important to you when it comes to choosing a person you want to vote for? Transparency integrity, um, a clear understanding of what their platform is. I look for just being diligent and sticking to what they said they were going to do. <laughs> I think that uh, the Democrats are on the right path. I think they just need to be a little more aggressive in what they're doing. Uh, I think that we're done with Biden thinking that he can uh, make a path between Republicans and Democrats. So he has to start really using his authority to pass laws or else there's going to be real problems in the future. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright, and a lot of people are about to start voting in yet another pivotal election. Political professionals from a wide swath of ideologies believe democracy itself is on the ballot in these midterm elections, particularly in the Republican primary elections, which are going to move into high gear over the next couple of weeks. My first guest tonight is trying to get into the heads of those primary voters. Sarah Longwell is the publisher of The Bulwark and host of its podcast, The Focus Group. She's been a player in Republican politics for some time, but these days she is perhaps most known for helping to create the Republican Voters Against Trump Coalition. That group later became the Republican Accountability Project, which is what it sounds like. They want to see accountability for what happened on January 6th. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I have to say that I've invited you here tonight basically because I want to hijack your podcast idea. (laughs) Um, For Sarah's podcast, she's conducting a rolling series of focus groups with three groups of voters. There's the super Trumpy voters. There's the Democratic voters. And probably most interesting, at least to me, there's the voters who switched from Trump to Biden in 2020. And on the podcast, Sarah plays recordings from her focus groups and asks both Republican and Democratic strategists to react to them. 
And I have to say I've become quite addicted to this, Sarah. It's it's kind of catnip for people who are into politics. And we're going to listen in on some of those focus groups tonight. But first off, just why are you such a huge proponent of focus groups in the first place? Why? What insight that's unique that is is it that you get about our political culture from focus groups? Yeah, there's 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 two reasons I really like focus groups. One is. Uh, People love polling, right? Everybody loves to see a good horse race poll. Uh, and, and the polling can kind of tell you the what, although only so accurately. But the focus groups can tell you the why. It can tell, tell you why somebody thinks something. And the reason I started doing focus groups actually was, uh, as you noted, I was a longtime Republican kind of operative strategist. I did a lot of policy work. Um, and when Trump won, in 2016, it occurred to me that I had perhaps been spending too much time in think tanks uh, because I did not understand what was going on with the Republican Party. And uh, I wanted to hear from voters and especially voters I didn't know personally, because that's just too fraught. (laughs) I wanted to hear from strangers um, why they voted for Donald Trump. And, And when I started doing them, it helped me. And then I sort of moved into the process of, okay, well, how do we defeat Donald Trump? Learning what we know now. And so I spent a lot of time with Trump voters who rated Donald Trump as very bad, which is when we built Republican voters against Trump, it was with a lot of information that we had gleaned from these voters that we felt like were on the bubble with Trump and could be pushed Mm -hmm. over. Um, But then, like you, uh, I became totally addicted. Um, You know, I've wanted to track things like, why do voters believe the big lie? Why, you know, do they believe that it was anti or Black Lives Matter that attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Um, And there's just nothing better than getting people into a group where they feel really comfortable because they're with other people like them who also voted for Donald Trump and just hear them tell their real reasons. Um, And I think, and it helps me formulate political strategies for uh, how you beat back some of these really pernicious effects on the Republican Party. Well, let's talk about what you're hearing in these focus groups. Um, And we have to start with the culture wars because that seems to be the top line uh, of at least Republican politics right now. Florida is, of course, this week's front line in that war. Uh, And listeners, in case you have somehow drowned out this news, here is the recap. Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republican-controlled legislature passed a bill back in March, I believe, uh, that bans classroom instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity before the fourth grade. Now, there are similar bills circulating in more than, I think, more than a dozen Republican-controlled states around the country. But in Florida, Disney criticized this bill. So now Ron DeSantis and the legislature have passed another law stripping Disney of a special tax status it held. It's kind of open retaliation for this speech. So now, Sarah, I have to say, I'm not even really sure where to start with this, but you have written op-eds in more than one outlet criticizing the initial Don't Say Gay law itself. Um, That's before we get to the irony of a Republican-controlled legislature uh, punishing political speech of a corporation. Uh, But have you asked any of your focus groups about this particular style of legislation? And if so, how do they react to it? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is what's interesting. Um, We should never take for granted. So people like us who follow politics really closely, you should never take for granted the amount of information that the average voter has. And so when you look at a bill like this, you know, I wrote an op ed in The Washington Post talking about why I opposed this bill. And it was kind of a complicated argument about what does the term instruction mean? And would that mean that if, you know, my kids well, somebody asked the teacher, you know, why do my kids have two moms? Uh, you know, would the teacher get in trouble if they were in Florida for answering that question in an age appropriate way? Um, is that instruction? And mm-hmm. so, as you know, I was kind of playing out the legal part of this. That is not how voters are thinking about this. Voters here, voters think that the bill is, why would you teach transgenderism to a kindergartner? That's what they hear. And when you hear it in that frame, mm-hmm. you can see why it's sort of a 60 40 issue where voters are like, yeah, that sounds, I think I'm, I support this bill because I don't think that kindergartners, they should be, you know, telling them about, you know, gay people or gay sex. And it's like, okay, well, sure. But what about 
families where they have two parents. Can they talk about that? And so it's, it's just more complicated than that. But the, the nuance. And when you say 60-40 issue, you mean 60-40, 60% of people are like, yeah, I like that. And 40% of the people are like, no. Yes, that's right. That's a, that's the polling on it in Florida. I mean, in Florida, it polls very well. Ron DeSantis. Um, and, and just to get to the focus groups, you know, one thing that's I ask in every single focus group of Trump voters, first thing I say is, uh, who do you want to see run in 2024? Majority of them say Trump. And if you say, okay, but if Trump doesn't run, who do you want to see run? And number one answer is Ron DeSantis. And the reason that it's Ron DeSantis is that people, uh, there's this Russian expression, the appetite increases while you're eating. And what Trump did was it took people from a place where they held their nose and voted for Donald Trump. And they would tell me in the focus groups, hey, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I voted against Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. But now they crave the mm-hmm. they crave the chaos. They crave the anger. They crave the aggressive. You know, I'm going to go punch my enemies in the face. And the don't say gay bills are kind of interesting because they're sort of like a side door to the hate, um, because even for people, you know, I, I actually maybe naively thought a lot of this was settled. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could find plenty of people who think it's fine for gay people to get married and they're supportive of that or they come around on that or they don't care that much about it. But, you know, they can get really amped up over the idea, uh, I think, falsely framed that, you know, yeah. sex is being taught to kindergartners. And is there a distinction when you talk about it in the in your focus groups between uh, the people who are getting hungry while they're hung, you get hungry while you eat sort of the people who are really in the MAGA movement versus those flipper category people who uh, went from Trump to Biden in 2020? Is there a distinction in how they react to this? Yeah, for sure. So what's interesting about when I call them flippers, um, yeah, the 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 Trump to Biden voters, they were like our persuadable bucket in going into the 2020 election. And they're a pretty interesting group because they're actually Republicans. Like if you ask them how they identify, they're generally moderate Republicans, mm-hmm. um, but they're moderate Republicans who hate Trump and hate the Trumpy elements of the Republican Party. And so the stuff that is um, super culture war Now, these are people, though, it sort of depends on what the war is, mm-hmm. because these are people who, like, were really angry at the way Democrats were handling COVID, for example. Like, if you just look, we did a bunch of focus grouping in Virginia around the Yunkin uh, McAuliffe race. And, you know, we talked to a ton of Biden voters, moms, suburban moms who were just furious that their kids weren't regularly in school, uh, that, you know, they were still having to wear masks. And, you know, you know, every every political season, they like name suburban mom something like right. security moms or whatever. <laughs> Going and, back like 30 years at this point. That's right. And I guess I would just say I would go with covid parents potentially for this cycle where because um, mm. it's 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 both uh, men and women but where a lot of these swing voters were really upset about the way COVID was being handled um, and and really wanted to move past it. But on issues like this, the more, um, the Trumpy aggressive, like going, calling Disney groomers and things like that, mm-hmm. that's a turnoff to this, these swing voters. Mm-hmm. So they're a complicated right. group, the swing voters. Right. And, on the on the COVID question, are they upset about the sort of um, individual liberty part of it, or they're upset about the disruption to to society and their kids' education part of it? Yeah, the latter. It, they're not particularly ideological about it. It's more uh, about you know this happened. This was like particular to Virginia, um, but you know the teachers got vaccinated. And then the teachers union said that the teachers didn't have to go back. Uh, They got to like kind of go to the front of the line to get vaccinated. And parents had just, I think, been trying to talk to the school board. They were just so frustrated and it was kind of wrapped in. And this is I try to explain this to people because reporters and others are always trying to kind of suss out individual issues and how that might impact things. And I try to explain to them that. The CRT issue and the COVID issue and critical race theory, CRT being critical race theory. Yeah, critical critical race theory that, that got brought up in Virginia. Like it's not actually about critical race theory. It's it's kind of all wrapped together in a cultural conversation where you get a certain group of voters who think that things are just going too far, that are getting too weird. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, I listen to these swing voters or even Trump voters, um, and like they think the way progressives talk, they just they think they sound like aliens, mm. like with the terms that they use and things that people don't understand. And um, and I think I try to be pretty. I guess I don't. I, but I, 
I think that there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, they're like 65 years old and they don't understand or have never thought about, you know, they would find like the, the trans swimmer or the trans athlete things mm-hmm. like totally disorienting. And mm-hmm. they're not, they're not bad people or they're not trying to be bigoted. They're just like, it's totally like this thing that they're like, what are you even talking about to right. me right now? And if you demonize that enough, it's like, yeah, that's weird. I don't, I don't know how to think about that, but I have to ask you, you know, I mean, with all of these culture wars in general, I remember so early in 2016, early when, when Trump first started winning in the, in the Republican primary at the time, I was an editor at the nation magazine, right? A bastion of the left. Uh, and we joked, I remember being in an editorial meeting, joking, thinking, well, if Trump wins, at least the all of this fights over morality and culture will stop, um, that that's going to be the end of that. Obviously, we were foolish. But, you know, back then you used to lead the log cabin Republicans, which is the the LGBT Republican group, and you quit when they endorsed Trump in, in protests. And I just wonder, did you see this turn coming? Because when you said you thought some of this stuff was settled, did you see that, oh, yeah, with this Trump movement, there's going to be a, re- a resurgence of the culture war, particularly around gay issues, but re- culture wars, period. So, yes, culture wars, no to the gay culture wars. Mm. Um, so I, they, I actually and they they kind of weren't like what was interesting. So uh, I actually I left Log Cabin. It's true. They really wanted to do our Trump. I said over over my dead body. And, uh, and, and there was, I mean, there was enough of us who were, who were against the endorsement, but ultimately, um, once he was elected, uh, people really wanted to endorse him. And one of the arguments that they had for why log cabin should endorse him was that he was the most pro gay Republican president we had ever seen. And that was sort of true. Like he, you know, waved an L, you know, one of those rainbow flags at a, at a protest. And he didn't really make, the social issues. He didn't put them at the center of, of what he was doing. It was more, he hated different people, right? Like right. he had a, he had a different set of people. And to me, that was just as alarming, like just because he had moved on from gay people didn't mean that, um, you know, we're going to say Mexicans are rapists and thieves and, you know, we're going to ban Muslims, like the entire religion. Like to me, I was like, well, this is preposterous. And so I did see, I saw him stirring up the most nefarious passions of people and using grievance politics and wedge politics and a politics of hatred. So like all of that, it just, it just didn't seem like the gay people specifically were on the menu. Um, But uh, quickly here, what's happened. It actually, this is pretty interesting to me as a like socio, I don't know, the, like a mass hysteria phenomenon. What you've got is this QAnon crazy thing that exists on the like dark web fringes that's getting slightly more mainstreamish, coupled with uh, the idea that like all Democrats are pedophiles and groomers and everybody's got to protect children that has wrapped itself, like it's congealed into a not quite coherent, but like you can see what's happening where Republicans almost as code, not code, but they, They've made this idea that like they're the ones protecting children and it layers up to all the QAnon crazy stuff. Um, But it is potent and it is working. And I think that Democrats are going to have to do something to contend with it because, I mean, like I said, it's a 60-40 issue. And and a lot of these swing voters are center right and do find some of these issues like they get they they find they they do light them up. I'm talking with Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark and executive director of the Republican Accountability Project. We're talking about the focus group she's conducting with voters as the midterm primaries begin. She's been talking with both Republicans and Democrats and with voters who switched from Trump to Biden in 2020, the flippers, as she calls them. If you've got a question for Sarah about these focus groups, call us up. We'll take your calls after a break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark and executive director of the Republican Accountability Project. And let's go straight to Jim in Brick Township, New Jersey. Jim, welcome to the show. Yes, hi. I'm wondering if the uh, recent uh, bad news about Putin will cause any serious drop-off among support for Trump, that given their close association or him being the laptop, I'm, I'm not seeing it so much. That, Or, or is this still too early in the game for uh, people to uh, start uh, having a, uh, seeing Trump in a more tarnished light by virtue of uh, Putin's villainy? Thanks for that, Jim. Sarah, is this coming up in your focus groups? It is. It's a, it's a great question. And unfortunately, I mean, you're not seeing, look, people who voted for Trump in 2020, uh, they're pretty dug in. And uh, what I hear in the focus groups, I've done a number on Ukraine. I actually did a great episode of the focus group podcast with Alexander Vindman about this. And what you hear from Trump voters is uh, that the media uh, is distorting what Trump said about Vladimir Putin. They believe that if Trump were president, Vladimir Putin would have never invaded Ukraine because Trump is so strong and so tough. Uh, that he would have really taken him head on. And it speaks to the um, alternative universe that Republicans have kind of built for themselves, uh, where the voters, and it's funny because they're very pro-Ukraine. I mean, like, uh, that is, that was completely clear. They loved Ukraine. They were, you know, they even at the time, I think this is not something that sticks with them, but at the time they were saying like, you know, if gas prices go up and that's what it takes to hurt Putin and help Ukraine, like we're for it. Uh, Not a sticky sentiment, but something they wanted to say uh, to show that they were with Ukraine. But if you bring up Trump, they just do not at all think that, that when you say like, well, Trump, you know, called Putin smart and, you know, was 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 close to him. They say, well, he is smart. He's you know, he's that's he's a dictator, but he's mm-hmm. smart. And, you know, they just they nothing, nothing severs. <laughs> Listen, if Trump is more popular today, which he is, uh, then he was, I believe, almost at any point in his presidency after January 6th, like nothing is prying these people away. And it is one of the- It's really hard to wrap your head around. It is. I I, I understand that, but I got to tell some of my friends who who are constantly have their microscopes out trying to tell you that Trump is losing his grip on the Republican Party. And I do not see any evidence that that is true. And what about for, again, for those flippers, how do they think about Ukraine and how that relates to um, either Trump or Biden? So it's interesting. I mean, the flippers hate Trump. I mean, this is people who are constitutionally that, yeah. Republican, <laughs> like they do not. They are they are mad at Biden. They were especially mad at Biden about Afghanistan. They don't think he's doing a particularly great job. Um, you know, they they think he's too old. They think he's on the weak side, um, but not a single. I don't think a single flipper. I talk to him all the time has ever said they regret not voting mm. for Donald Trump. Uh, so there you go. There you go. Well, I want to, I speaking of Biden, I want to hear a little bit about what your focus groups are saying about Democrats and Biden in general, and particularly uh, what the Democrats and flippers are saying um, about where the country sits now under Democratic leadership. So I'm going to play a bit of a little bit of this. And I should say, Sarah, we cut some of your your original audio in this. Well, they're definitely better than they were under Trump. They're better than they were a couple of years ago. I've got some real serious concerns about the future. I don't think our country is going in the right direction. It's kind of stable, (laughs) more stable than it has been, and that's nice. But I still think there's a lot of issues that are falling through the cracks. I feel like we are really headed in a bad direction, and I'm not going to necessarily blame Joe Biden for that. I think things are just not going great. I think we could be doing a lot more. I feel more insecure at this time in my life than I ever have. So I agree with that last person. I kind of feel the same thing. But, you know, in your podcast, Sarah, you played these cuts for Robert Gibbs, who was, of course, President Obama's press secretary during his first term. And he seemed to share your feeling that all of this is very bad news for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Talk about what you're hearing, particularly, again, from those flippers about Biden now. Yeah, I mean, the, it's striking listening to those clips because the, the word that has come to mind for me listening to voters, and this kind of goes across the political spectrum, is the precariousness that people feel. Um, it's not even like right track, wrong track. It's just people feel like, ah, World War II, 
three could break out at any minute, runaway inflation, COVID comes back and shuts everything down. Like people are freaked out. And I think that Joe Biden's Joe Biden had had one really big, important thing to do, and that was to beat Donald Trump. And people are happy that he did that. Um, But I think in terms of people's having at least some expectation that when Joe Biden came in, sort of normality would resettle things that not happening has left people really feeling cold toward Biden. Um, and and certainly with the flippers, like they all say the sort of the same thing. They're like, well, it's better than under Trump, but, you know, marginally. And, and I do think uh, it's funny as people sort of layer into 2024 and they start to say, boy, Trump versus Biden, like that's what it's looking like again. I mean, I can't tell you how, at least on the Dem side, how little Democratic voters seem to want Biden to run again, which doesn't mean they want a more progressive candidate. It's not that they, they just, they want, they are, they are really afraid he's too old and they are really worried he wouldn't beat Trump in a head to head matchup again. Really? And so it's, but it's not about a dislike for Biden. They just don't think he can win. Yeah. I mean, people actually, people like Biden as the human, Um, certainly the swing voters and, and the Democrats, they kind of think like, he's a nice guy. They just think, yeah, man, he's too old. He's too old. He's not strong. Um, they don't understand why they don't hear from him very much. I mean, this is actually if there's a something coming from the Democratic focus groups that I would say is just totally a theme that you hear at every group is people are actually befuddled as to why Biden is not more present, not more visible. Um, they sort of say like, hey, we're lurching from crisis to crisis here and he doesn't come out and, you know, give a lot of speeches, talk to us. I mean, I think there's something to be said for Donald Trump blaring in people's ear like a Mm. car alarm for so long that when he was turned off, it was like a real relief. But like there is an absence now where people at least they want to hear more. They want to get more direction. I mean, it's almost like the getting hungry. You get more hungry while you eat things for all of us. We just got used to this presidency that was a bullhorn constantly. I think that's right. So. I, we've, we're running short on time here, but I want to get to two more things. One, uh, so keep that in mind. But but one thing is that somebody tweeted at me asking, I think, a genuine question about the Republican voters you're hearing in the focus groups who are believing these things that sound like they're crazy from another planet. Like, are these otherwise, they say, otherwise, quote, intelligent and thoughtful people? Um, I, I'm certainly not going to label anybody as crazy or stupid. Um, I, I think that they're... I mean, but you certainly get people like that. You get people saying crazy things. You get people saying um, horrible things sometimes, but not for the most part. I mean, for the most part, you get kind of normal people who come from an incredibly different culture uh, than people who live in cities, have very different backgrounds, um, and they swim in kind of a cultural soup of Trumpism. So like they don't watch a ton of Tucker Carlson, but the smartest person that they work with at the office, they watch a lot of Tucker Carlson. And so they hear things or like Facebook and social media, like not even watching the news, just the imagine your entire social network believes that the election was stolen and is constantly sharing articles about why the election was stolen and proof that the election was stolen. And you're just a normal person living your life. You don't think that much about politics. But when someone says, do you think the election was stolen? You're like, yeah, I don't know. I've seen a lot of my friends say that it is. It just keeps coming up. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so related to that is you had representative Adam Kinzinger uh, on your show. He's similarly, uh, you know, he's one of a couple of Republicans who are on the house committee. Um, and he sort of said, well, you know, you asked him why about his colleagues, his Republican colleagues. And he, he responded saying, well, you know, they, they can't turn on Trump now because that would mean turning on themselves. Uh, and I'm just wondering what you think about that as we let you go here. What, uh, because that's a, that's a depressing thought in terms of like what could actually happen if the, if the point is that Republicans, whether they're voters or electeds, can't turn on the MAGA movement because it would mean turning on themselves. It's hard to imagine how we ever turn the corner. Yeah, I mean, that was a really trenchant point by uh, Adam that I hadn't quite thought about before. But there is a reason that people are primed not to just sort of self-reflect and say, ah, I've been given new information. I've now changed my mind. Like they are deeply invested in the narrative that they have convinced themselves of. I mean, imagine you are somebody who hated Trump or thought he was really gross, but like talked yourself into voting for him. Like over time, you've now talked yourself into a lot. And so those compromises, um, they add up. That being 
being said, I don't think that it means we can't get out of this. I actually think leadership matters a great deal. It's the reason I think Ron DeSantis, he is a bleak person for the Republican Party to lead it. But if there was better leadership in this country, or even a a more centrist figure, a third party, if you have to rerun the 2020, but leadership's going to matter a ton and, and it can cause, it could change things. We got to leave it there. Sarah Longwell is publisher of The Bulwark and executive director of the Republican Accountability Project. Her podcast is called The Focus Group. I I urge you to check it out. Coming up, a follow-up to our episode on the relationship between our names and our identities. That's next. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. If you like this episode, let me suggest another one you might enjoy too. It's called A Conservative View of the Vigilante Right. Back in January, Kai talked to Mona Charon, who coincidentally works with our guest this week at The Bulwark. Kai talked to Mona about the true meaning of the term conservative and the radical shift we're seeing right now in the GOP. So if you'd like to learn more about the state of the right ahead of the midterm elections, be sure to check that out. And as always, if you have a response, a question, or an idea, send us a message. You can record yourself or write and email it to anxiety at WNYC.org. That's anxiety at WNYC.org. Or you can always talk to us on Twitter. Just use the hashtag US of anxiety. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. So for the past few months, this show has been in conversation with you, our listeners, about your identities. Most recently, we explored our names and how they connect to our racial and ethnic identities. And a whole lot of you wanted to join that conversation. So I want to share what some of you sent us. And as always, when we open our listener mailbag, I'm joined by our senior digital producer, Kusha Navadar. Hey, Kusha. Hey, Kai. I have made so many new friends. Okay. okay. (laughs) People actually still sending us messages. We got a lot of stories about people's relationships with their own names. Here are some highlights. Hi, Kai. This is Lauren from Inwood, Manhattan. I'm a black woman. I am met with surprise by people of all races when they finally meet me. And I have found that in white settings, I feel the need to prove that the person who has been talking with those people either over the phone or in writing using the name Lauren is the person that they are now speaking to in person with my blackness, with my locks. My name and the way that I speak might put me in a different cast, but as soon as I'm seen, I go back down and then have to reprove myself. Hi, my name is Jeriel. It is a combination of my mother and father's names. My mother is named Geraldine, but people call her Jerry. My father was named Albert, but people called him Al. So Jerry plus Al equals Jeriel. And my mother was always really nervous about this name, I think. So she gave me the middle name, Marie. And she would always tell me, I I wanted you to have a simple middle name in case you didn't like your first name and you could go by Marie. And I never felt compelled to do that. And probably only in the past five to seven years that because my name is exotic and sometimes people don't know that I am white when they see my name, I didn't have any clue that I might have actually experienced discrimination when sending my resume to people. Um, I have had the white privilege that goes along with being a white person with this name. Um, But I can imagine before people see me, I may have been excluded from opportunities and I had no idea. Kai, I think it's super interesting how both Lauren and Jerielle were talking about the same thing, but kind of from different sides of the table. Yeah, it's we're just all so twisted up when it comes to our names and race. And I, I wonder, was that do we get a lot of that? Is that what everybody wanted to call in to talk about? Well, it's a good question because we did get a lot of stories, but not all of them were of race or ethnic identity. Some of them were just sweet stories. I'm Nicole from Kew Gardens, Queens, and I never really liked my name. But the story behind it is that my mom named me something different and my dad said, you got to name the last one just 14 months ago, so I want to name this one. And so he named me Nicole. Having found out a year ago 
that my dad is not my biological father, it became much more special to know that my name was chosen by him, who may have subconsciously felt that maybe I wasn't his and he needed a deeper connection. And as much as I haven't loved my name, my name will always have a connection to my dad who raised me, who might not share my blood, but I'm so thankful for. So I will gladly say my name is Nicole. My name is Brady Polson. I think you may have overlooked or missed an opportunity to discuss a very interesting side of people's relationship to their names. Um, having had a few friends who've come out as transgender, I've seen how the selection of a new name and the public transfer or transition to that name, how it's her struggle and an experience in and of itself. Um, personally, I find a follow-up or spin-off addressing this issue very interesting and very informative. Okay, Brady gives us some homework there. I like it, Kusha, I have to say. It makes me happy when listeners engage in this way, you know? Like, take what we gave you and then, you know, point out what we can do next. Yeah, Brady, if you're listening, thanks for sending us this. And we took you up on the suggestion. I went out to find someone who could talk to us about the transgender experience with names. I am Teresa Jean Tannenbaum. Uh, You can call me Tess. I'm an associate professor at UC Irvine in the Department of Informatics. Uh, I run a group called the Transformative Play Lab. I love all of the wonderful instruments I see in the back. Can you take me around your studio a little bit? I mean, I have uh, the 12-string guitar is where I started. Uh, The violin is actually my father's old violin, which I recently restored because one of my girlfriends is a violin teacher. That's awesome. I wish we could show you our studio right now. It's actually like comparable in a a flattering way to to what you've got going on. (laughs) We're a radio station, so like that compliment to you. Uh, And I'm an amateur. I'm an amateur who's (laughs) just been tinkering. So you listen to Brady's voicemail. What did listening to that voicemail bring up for you? I've spent a lot of time dealing with my name over the last almost three years since I came out. And I've, I've been on a journey from indifference to deep investment to trauma to, to sort of coming to peace with the names that I, I have now and that I had uh, when I was born. And, I mean, he's absolutely right that as a case study for what a name does for somebody as an identity. Like the transgender experience is this little microcosm of so many issues around name and identity that that Mm. I've actually spent quite a few years digging into pretty deeply. Mm. Tell me the story of how you chose the name Tess. Yeah, uh, so when I came out in in mid-2019, I started with a list of names that I was interested in. I didn't really know what I wanted my name to be. I knew that I didn't want it to be the the very male gender dead name that that I had had. So I, I actually ended up picking a name that we had given to my daughter, mm. uh, where my wife and I, when we were choosing names for her, get, wanted her to have like a useful, practical, normal name and a weird name, like a fun, cool name. And, and so we, we made her first name a, a fairly normal one. Her first name was Abigail. Mm-hmm. And we, we debated a lot on the middle name, but we ended up with Tesla after the Serbian inventor, mm. um, not after the car company. Right, right. Um, <laughs> and... And in particular, we found ourselves doodling names one day in a birthing class, and Abigail Tesla Tannenbaum felt it was just fun to doodle. There were a lot of good letters. Tesla offered a lot of fun doodling opportunities. And and we realized, like, Tess Tannenbaum sounded like a great name. We're like, I would love to meet a Tess Tannenbaum. She'd be like this plucky girl reporter from a pulp serial (laughs) story. Um, Or like the secret identity of a superhero. And... Then our daughter was born and insisted on being Abigail. She's been very insistent since she was born that that she only wants to be called Abigail. And so we had this really cool name we had given her that wasn't being used. Mm. And at one point, my wife said, well, what if you were Tess Tannenbaum? And I thought, no, that'd be really funny. Oh, wait. I I had this moment of like, that's it. That's Uh exactly right. Mm -hmm. That feels so good. And it ended up being short for Teresa. It was a character of a book that I read as a child. So I ended up being Teresa, and I wanted a middle name that was a family name that was connected to my past. And 
as I have been in transition, one of the one of the things that I have really loved about discovering myself as a woman and discovering sort of what it means to inhabit the world as a woman is the ways in which I've been able to aspire to things about my mother and my grandmother mm. that I've always admired, that I've always wanted to see reflected in myself, that I've always struggled to embody before coming out. And so I, I approached my mother and my sister and asked if it was okay if I took my grandmother's first name, if they were comfortable with me reclaiming that name as my middle name. And then they agreed, and so I became Teresa Jean Tannenbaum. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm named for my daughter and for my grandmother. Oh, I love that. Uh, you used a term that uh, I could use help with understanding, dead name. Could mm -hmm. you explain that to me, please? I can. Not every transgender person uses this for the name that they were given when they were born, but for many of us, it's a good way to describe it. Uh, it's a term that we use to describe our, our previous name. And when I first changed my name, I was pretty insistent on the idea that my, my previous name wouldn't be a dead name, that I didn't have any, any unhappy feelings associated with it. But the deeper I got into this, especially the first few years of my transition, the more that name started to harm me and the more I started to experience pretty profound trauma around it um, to the point where encountering it in my daily life was enough to just ruin my day or even my mm. week, depending on the context, especially if it was somebody who purported to care about me, using it for me. And there's this thing that, that people do, that even I do, when I encounter somebody's previous name which is that there's a part of our brain that doesn't want to let go of the knowledge of that name. And so it sticks around in your head. And, and it's, I think of it as this mm. little trauma landmine that people step on, and then it just blows up your conversation, it blows up your day, it sometimes blows up your relationship. Mm. And the other thing that, that's important to mention when talking about dead names is the ways in which people weaponize them against transgender people. Mm. Um, this idea that we can't really change who we were and that who we are is always going to be in some way overshadowed by where we started. Mm. Your own journey uh, included trying to navigate the, the world of changing your name while also already being published as an academic under your dead name, right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I... I knew I wanted to transition for years before I finally actually did so. Uh, for, and there was a variety of reasons why I, I tried to, to not transition until I, I couldn't really stand living as or being seen as, as a man anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and part of it was that I was pre-tenure at UC Irvine, and wow. I had a publication record in my previous name. And, and I didn't want my tenure case to be a conversation about my gender identity. I wanted it to be a conversation about my scholarship and my ideas and my contributions and my work. And so there was a period of time where like, I had committed to trying to hold out on transitioning, not because I didn't want to start living an affirming life, but because I was afraid of the, the professional consequences of, of the name change that I wanted to make. And, and ultimately, I, I decided that the challenge of, of changing my name was, was worth it. And so I, I reached out to publishers thinking that, you know, plenty of people change their names at marriage, at divorce, upon religious conversion, right. uh, just for fun. Lots of people change their names in the world. There surely must be some provision for this in the policies of the, the global publishing organizations. And very naively thinking this. And was either rejected or ignored by every publisher I reached out to. Mm. What did they say? They couldn't really justify why they wouldn't change the name, except that they never really had before. It had never been part of their practice. And I'm a stubborn person. Mm -hmm. And I started to look into the legal issues around name changes, and, and I saw that there was no real legal barrier to preventing retroactive name changes on previously published work. And, and it started to seem like the only reason there wasn't already provisions for it is because the publishing industry was built by and for men, and that tr typically it's women who change their names in our society. And... I was very fortunate in that I was at a conference, the first conference I was out at, and a colleague, Elizabeth Churchill, was one of the vice presidents of the Association of Computing Machinery at that time. 
which is the largest archive of published work on computation going back to 1976. And she mentioned that the ACM had seen an increased number of cases of, of name change requests, and there had been a committee assembled to discuss the possibility of this in the ACM Digital Library. And she asked if I wanted to get involved in the committee. Another trans colleague, Serafina Toops, and another trans colleague, Kata Spiel, uh, the three of us sat down over the Rosh Hashanah weekend in September of 2019, and we got in a shared document, and we started writing a policy. We, we got, and we, the policy we ended up with was a bit of a compromise, mm. but it was the first, mm. and it it gave us a reality proof that I then took to Springer and Elsevier and Sage and Wiley and a number of other publishers, and and ultimately. What it did was it led to a, an article in Nature, which is how you found me, where I, I made a case for a need to allow authors to change their names, and in particular, allowing transgender authors to change their names because of the, the risks we face when outed as trans by our publishing record. Speaking of that article in Nature, one of the lines that really struck me in there was when you wrote, why should cis scholars care? For one thing, people are most creative and productive when they can be their true selves. And that struck me because it's a pretty intuitive explanation, but I can only imagine the nuance and import that it's had in your own life and your own career. Well, I mean, for one thing, I, it's forced me to reevaluate all, all the work that I did prior to coming out. Before I came out, I had this thing that didn't make sense in my life, that I couldn't make sense of. I, I knew that there was something missing. And all of my work for years was me trying to fill that void, and I couldn't. And it was exhausting. It was exhausting trying to be this person that, that the world expected me to be, that, that my body was telling me I was supposed to be, that, that my family, friends, and colleagues were expecting to be. And I had this anxiety when I started my transition that like, I wouldn't know how to act like a woman, whatever that means, how to be a woman. And what I discovered was actually when I transitioned, I got to stop acting. I got to stop mm. performing. I got to stop putting in all of this effort to try to look like this thing that I thought I was supposed to be. And instead, I got to just relax into myself. And suddenly, I had access to creative resources and, and cognitive resources that had been denied to me because I had been devoting so much of my brain power yeah. to, to trying to hide and mask and fit in the world, in the box that I had been assigned. So it's great to think about that in the context of what you're doing now. One of the projects that I found very, very interesting, uh, Alt. Mm -hmm. the, the website is Alt-History. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it grabbed my attention because of its tagline on the website. It uses augmented reality to, and this is from the website, discover a different past and imagine a different future. Now. Mm -hmm. I tried to install this on a phone I found today, an Android oh, I'm sorry. phone. I tried. I, I was not it's, successful. I got like to step very functional. <laughs> All good. It was I was excited to try it out. So Tess and I talked about the app and it got pretty technical. But what's fascinating is that this app lets you collect virtual relics in specific physical spaces all through your phone. Those artifacts you collect encourage you to reimagine the past and maybe redefine your future. It's like the Pokemon Go of alternate histories for social justice. Got it. <laughs> maybe that's how we should describe ourselves. For sure, yeah. All of this is to say, Tess has really opened her mind to how technology can empower someone to engage with their story. And meanwhile, she continues to engage with her own story, too. So I'm on sabbatical right now. I, I got tenure last year and then immediately took a sabbatical because I was, I was burned out at that point and needed some time to work. And I talked earlier about getting all of this energy back when I came out and transitioned. And what that energy did was it, it allowed me to do something which I've been wanting to do my whole life, which was actually write songs that, that I found beautiful and meaningful and, and, and visceral. And, and I wrote a song about coming out. I wrote a song specifically about the moment where I started my transition, where I called uh, Kaiser Permanente and asked to meet with an assessment uh, counselor to begin hormone replacement therapy. And then I wrote a song 
uh, called Making It Real that's about the moments after that phone call where you suddenly sort of realize this thing that used to be just in your head is now in the world. You've said the words. You can't unsay them. What does that mean for your life? Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's kind of cool. I've always wanted to write a musical. I, could I write another song? <laughs> And so I did, and I thought, wow, I wrote another song. I've, I've written two songs. What are the odds? Maybe I'll write a third. Uh, I now have 14 songs just for this show and two other shows in the works. Uh, and, and I've found myself in this extraordinary, prolific, passionate period in my career where I've created something that I think is probably the best thing I have ever or will ever make in my life. Those little nagging feelings buried deep inside I want people to start to understand that we are the masters of our identity, that we spend so much time living inside of boxes, whether those be socioeconomic boxes, cultural boxes, gendered boxes. And I want to make space for people to feel safe pushing back against those forces that keep them fixed within a particular identity space. I want to create spaces for emancipation. I want to create spaces for identity emancipation where we don't simply accept the role that we've been forced into, but instead are able to say, no, you know what? This isn't serving me right now. I want more. I need more. And I have to take responsibility for that myself. Tess, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Tess Tannenbaum at the University of California in Irvine talking with our producer, Kusha Navadar. And hey, you can be like Brady. If you hear something and think we ought to dig deeper or follow up, let us know. Email me at anxiety at WNYC.org. That's anxiety at WNYC.org. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. Our theme music was written by Hannes Brown and performed by the Outer Borough Brass Band. Sound designed by Jared Paul. Milton Ruiz was at the boards for the live show. Special thanks to Leora Noam Kravitz, who mixed the podcast version this week. Our team also includes Emily Botine, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, and Kusha Navadar. And I am Kai Wright. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at Kai underscore Wright. And of course, you can find me live every Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern. Stream the show at WNYC.org or tell your smart speaker to play WNYC. I'll talk to you then. Take care of yourselves. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level you'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.